If you have a Bible, let's look together this morning in Mark chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, the verses that we'll be looking at this morning should come up on the screen behind me. Mark chapter 14, I'll read verses 53 through 65. We're getting close to the end. You all getting tired of Mark? Okay, well, that's good to hear. Well, I appreciate y'all enduring all this. I tell you, it's been, I love the gospel of Mark. It's been a tremendous blessing to go through this with you. And I know we haven't covered everything, but we've been rummaging through this together. And uh, the Lord has really encouraged my heart with his truth as I've been studying this with you. So thank you. It's amazing. I, you know, in August, I think was, um, probably should have told you this on that Sunday. August was uh, 11th. August 15th, August, something like that, was the 11th anniversary of my ordination. It's hard to believe that I've been ordained in the ministry for 11 years, you know, and uh, I actually have the privilege of studying the Bible and praying and meeting with people. It's an amazing job, and I thank you for asking me to come and be your pastor and to have this privilege of doing this virtually every week. It's, uh, it's very humbling, and I thank you. Mark 14, beginning in verse 53, let's hear the Word of God, and let's receive it as if our whole life depends upon it. How about that? Can we try to do that together? This is His Word, it's not mine. He breathed it out, and He means it to affect everything about us, and it will. Listen to this. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all of the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Doesn't that sound awesome? And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him. With blows. Let's pray together. 
Oh Lord, we thank you for calling us into your presence. We thank you that we don't have to hope that you're going to show up, that you're here. We're the problem, not you. We thank you that you remind us that whether we have, uh, are going through tremendous affliction or whether we're confused, that you exalt yourself to be gracious and merciful to us. We thank you, Lord, that you would even hear and receive our singing. We thank you, Lord, that we are in a place this morning where we can be completely honest with you and where we can acknowledge that our sin is everywhere We don't measure up to your standards, we have failed, and we need your grace, we need your mercy, we need not only forgiveness, but we need you to change us and make us new. And Lord, we thank you that you continue to speak to us, that we can have your word read. And we ask, Lord, that you would grant us your spirit, that your spirit might make your word to mean everything that it is supposed to mean in our lives. Not what we want it to say, not what we hope it says, but what it says. Lord, Lord, please make our lives revolve around the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in some superficial, trivial, social, southern, Greenville, North Carolina, weird way but in a way that we love you and trust you and obey you and follow you and love you and love our neighbor and love our city. Expose whatever needs to be exposed. Bring us, Lord, to the table of the king as we meet him here in the scriptures. We pray in the name of our king. Yes, Jesus. We pray all this in your name and because of what you have done and because of who you are. Amen. As we think about this passage this morning and as we come here into this place, I want to remind you that we all know that something is wrong with the world, don't we? Whether you're here this morning and believe in the Lord Jesus or whether you don't, we all know that something is wrong. There's disorder in the world. There's lots of things that just show us over and over again that this is not the way things are supposed to be. We have examples of this all the time. Those of you that maybe have some knowledge of the legal system and at the same time like football, you realize that we live in a world where a professional athlete can, because of his intoxication, kill someone, spend 23 days in jail. And another professional football player can get arrested for dogfighting or whatever that, matter, whatever that is and spend two years, 23 months-ish. We live in a very strange world. We live in a world that is full of disorder. We live in a world where there are actually abusive parents. Some of you have experienced this in very deep and painful ways. We live in a world in which you can fulfill your callings once you leave here this morning and and go to work tomorrow, whether that is at the office or whether that means you're staying at home. Whatever it is in which you're fulfilling your calling, you can actually live and you do live in a world in which you can be treated just as if you're a number. 
You can be treated as if the only thing that you're good for is just what you can produce. You live in a world and you work or can employ people and treat them or be treated as if they don't have a life and aren't a real human being. Do you know this? You know the pain and the struggle? It's not the way it's supposed to be. We live in a world in which there are some issues that if you disagree on, if you disagree with someone on, they will actually instantly think and assume that you hate them. That you're judging. Just if you disagree about an issue. Meaning the mentality in disagreeing is that you would like further dialogue, right? That if you disagree with someone, they might instantly think, you hate me and you're the most judgmental person. We live in that kind of world. Very little real dialogue goes on anymore. Have you noticed this in your own lives? We live in a very, very, very strange world. We live in a place in which you know people and you might be this person, in which people are always looking for loopholes. They're always looking for ways to beat the system. They're always looking for ways to abuse the system. And oh, by the way, the system's broken. We live in a world, and and please don't take this as a political statement. Please don't. Healthcare? What in the world? Don't take that one way or another. Just take it for what it is. What? What's going on? Does anybody really know? I certainly don't. So just take that as a statement of my ignorance, not some political statement that I'm trying to push my agenda. We live in a place where a bad call can ruin a game, enable someone to lose their job. And in the midst of all this, and there's so many other things that you can add to what I've said, so many things you can add to my list, in the middle of all this, I just want to add one more thing. And what I want to add is what I want you to take away from this text in Mark 14. Yes, one sentence, one summary. This is what I want you to know about this passage. Your judge sat under judgment. Your judge sat under judgment. Well, that doesn't really make much sense either, does it? Well, let's see if we can see how it makes sense and actually changes everything for us. Here's the story. The text starts off in verse 53 by reminding us, and they led Jesus. You see, God wants us to remember that this is part of the story. There's a connection here. You see, those that led Jesus are the same ones in verse 46 that laid hands on Jesus and seized him. God wants us to make the connection that this life of Jesus, as he's going toward the end, as he's pursuing the cross, yes, pursuing the cross, journeying to the cross, men laid hold of him and seized him. They came and found him in the garden, he was praying. And here they are, those same men that laid hold of Jesus and seized him, they led him away. They brought him to the high priest's house, his name was Caiaphas. They brought Jesus after they laid hands on him and brought him to Caiaphas' palace. And then you have all these descriptions. 
all the high, uh, excuse me, and the, all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. The high priest is Caiaphas. There were other priests. There were other elders, and there were other scribes. In other words, after men laid hands on your Jesus, they laid hands on your King. They brought him to the high priest's house, whose name was Caiaphas, and there were all these other people there. And in short, they equal the Sanhedrin. We're at Caiaphas' palace, and the Sanhedrin are there as well. The Sanhedrin are basically the supreme court of the Jewish people. It's made up of pastors, it's made up of leaders, it's made up of elders, scribes, some of the representatives of the most influential families in Jerusalem. They've all gathered here. Caiaphas is the high priest. And apparently, as the historians tell us, Caiaphas was a very skilled diplomat. Most high priests make it four years. He was going on 18, 19. They bring Jesus to Caiaphas' house because they want to do something. Verse 55 tells you. They were seeking a way to find him guilty. They wanted him to be found guilty. They wanted to put him to death. They wanted to put Jesus to death. So here they are at Caiaphas' place. The Sanhedrin is gathered, at least a representative of the Supreme Court of the Jewish people were present. And then this is what happens. People begin to come forward to bring forth evidence against Jesus. You can look at verse 55 and verse 56. Witnesses come forward to accuse Jesus. Several folks come forward with things. But it just so happens that their stories didn't match up. I mean, if you're going to find a guy guilty and if you want to kill a guy, you sure better have some reasons as to why that's the case, right? Well, the witnesses come forward and they bring accusations, but their stories don't match up. They differed on some details, And therefore, their testimony as a whole was inadmissible. It couldn't hold any water. It couldn't do anything. It wasn't usable. So, the witnesses were dismissed. That's what the text tells you. Then another group of witnesses come forward. Look at verse 57. Another group of witnesses come forward, and they have testimony against Jesus. What they tell us in verse 58 is that this is what Jesus said. We heard him say, verse 58, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. You see, in the ancient world, if you destroyed a place of worship, that was a capital offense. And they thought, here we have, we've got him now. We can take him out. The only problem is Jesus didn't really say that he was going to destroy the temple. If you look back in Mark chapter 13, you'll remember that he predicted it was going to happen. And it did. Not that he was going to do it. There were other times when he talked about the temple when he was actually talking about his own body. He was also prophesying that when you take me out and when I eventually die, I'm going to be raised. The witnesses come and they think we've got him on this one. 
The problem is, again, that verse 59 tells you. Verse 59 tells you that their, their testimonies didn't agree a second time. They try to take Jesus out, but it doesn't work. And isn't it interesting that all up to this point, and even a little bit beyond this point, Jesus doesn't say a word. Can you imagine if you put yourself in the courtroom or if you put yourself on the second floor of Caiaphas' palace? Can you imagine if you were in that room how frustrating this would have been? If you're on the Sanhedrin, if you're Caiaphas, can you imagine the level of frustration? I mean, here's basically what happened. They bring Jesus in by force. They accuse him of several things. Witnesses stand up and accuse him of several things. He doesn't respond. So Caiaphas is probably sitting there, probably moderating the whole thing. Well, what do we do now? Here are accusations. Jesus says nothing. So in nervousness, why don't we ask some more questions? So he begins to ask more questions of the first set of witnesses. And the more questions he asks, the more confusing and inconsistent the story is. To where they have to say, well, well, we can't accept these witnesses. They obviously don't agree. So then, well, is there anything else we're going to do? Well, here's some other witnesses, and they come forward. And this time, as it says, there's a clear charge. But Jesus says nothing. So what are you going to do to break that tension? Well, let's ask some more questions. Have you ever been in these moments? You know, those awkward moments where you're supposed to lead some type of meeting and no one's saying anything? So you think, well, I'll just start talking. Some of you do that. Some of you get really nervous. And when you get nervous, you start talking. I usually am the opposite. When I get nervous, I don't like to talk. Or I talk really fast. But I can just imagine Caiaphas being there and the second witnesses come up and they make this bold accusation. This man said he was going to take down the temple, that he was going to destroy it. There's no answer. So Caiaphas thinks, well, let's ask some more questions. And again, the stories don't add up. And then Caiaphas probably thought to himself, man, this is really getting out of control. It's the middle of the night. He probably was in the planning of trying to get the Sanhedrin there in the middle of the night. So as the text says, Caiaphas just stands up in the middle of them. He was determined. The assembly was determined they were going to find something. And so Caiaphas, as verse 60 tells you, he just, he just remained Silent, and then all of a sudden, stood up in the midst of them. And he began to talk to Jesus. He began to take control of the situation, if you will. And finally, he asked the question in verse 61. Finally, he tried to put all of this to rest. Jesus, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of the blessed? Is this who you are? Now, when you think about this question, beloved, as we sit here this morning, it is not an exaggeration to say that everything hangs in the balance as this question is posed 
and as we're waiting for an answer. Everything hangs in the balance with this question. The fate of everything hangs on Jesus' answer. Everything. Things like, can we really do everything to God's glory? It hangs in the balance. Is it really true that from him and to, from God and to God and for God are all things and to him alone be glory forever? Is it really true that God is going to be glorified in everything? Is it really true that God is in control over everything? It hangs in the balance. Is it true that forgiveness is possible? Is it, is, it, is it possible that forgiveness could be real? As you sit here this morning, as you think about the shame in your own life, the doubt in your own life, the frustrating things in your life, the things that you continue to do, the ways that you continue to think, the goals that you continue to want to have, that are misguided. Is it true that forgiveness is a possibility as we gather here today in 2014? Everything hangs in the balance with this question. Is it true that life can have any meaning? Is it true that there's a reason to go to work this week? Is it true that I can be at Christ Presbyterian Church on this particular day, is it true that I can be optimistic about my future? Is it true that there is something beyond the hard that I'm in? Is it possible? Well, Jesus says to this question, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus responds and says, in a nutshell, yes, I am. Isn't that wonderful? And you know what? He doesn't stop there. Here's the question again. Verse 61, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. And coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus says, I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am the answer for sin. I am the answer for evil. I am the answer for all the injustices in the world. I am the reason why faith can happen. The fact that I'm the Messiah means that, the growth, that growth is possible. It means that redemption is real. It means that worldwide renovation is going to happen. Behold, I'm making all things new, Jesus says. And he doesn't just say he's the Messiah. Is that it actually presses further, and in pressing further, everything I read to you after the end, he's actually connecting two passages in the Scripture. One from Daniel 7 and the other from Psalm 110. Jesus says, it's not just that I am the Messiah. It's not just that I am the Savior. It's not just that because of me, forgiveness is real and evil has been answered and evil will be answered and evil will be, evil will be removed. It's that I'm actually 
the judge. It said, actually, not long after I die, I will be raised. And not many days after that, I will be on my way to heaven. And I will be exalted at the right hand of my Father. And from that right hand, I will rule. And not only will I rule, because that's what's meant by being seated at the right hand of power. Isn't that awesome? Power. You realize that the living God is power. He doesn't just have power. He is power. You and I might possess a little bit of power here and there, and it comes and goes, and many times it just doesn't amount to much, even though we like to make a big deal about how much power we think we have with one little thing in our lives. But we really don't have any power, and it goes so quickly. But God is power. And Jesus says, not only am I going to be seated at the right hand of power, but I'm coming back in the clouds, meaning with glory. I am going to come back in glory and I will put an end to everything that is contrary to the holy will of God. It's not just that I'm the Messiah. It's not just that forgiveness for you is possible. It's not just that forgiveness is real. It's that one day, after all this takes place and all that works out in this trial and the next one to come, it's that one day I'm going to come back. And I will be coming back with glory. And I will come back in glory to right every wrong. I will come back in glory to be just. I will come back in glory to put an end to sin, to put an end to evil and all the injustices that make our experiences and our world seem oh so broken. That make our day-to-day lives seem very strange and bizarre. I will come back and I will put an end to all of that. I'll do it. I'm going to put evil down. As I was reading this passage this week, I couldn't help but think about that great passage in John 10 where Jesus is describing himself as the shepherd. It's a very special passage to me. I love this passage. But Jesus, as he's facing this question, are you the Christ? And he goes on to answer it. It's as if he is looking out and seeing all of his sheep. It's as if he's looking out and seeing the entirety of his church. And he is communicating with his answer, answer, oh yes, I am the shepherd. There will be one flock and there's only one shepherd. It's as if he's saying, I am the Messiah and I am the judge. And you must acknowledge that I'm not just the fulfillment of all the prophetic passages in the Old Testament to come and redeem a people. I'm also the one who's coming again in glory. You see, if you're here this morning, the second coming of Christ is one of the most precious things that you can ever think about and meditate on. Because if God is real, and what Jesus did is true, and it is, then holiness, righteousness wins. It means that God is God. 
Well, Jesus answered this, and as you can read in the text, there is an explosion of outrage. Caiaphas hears this, and you notice what he does. He tears his garments. Did you notice that? I can't believe he's saying this. He, 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 he tore his garments. And the others there began to spit on Jesus and hit him and mock him. Your king, your savior. They began to spit on his face and slap him. They began to make fun of him. As the text says, they began to strike him. And then he gave, they gave Jesus over to the guards with blows. Meaning, as they handed him off to the guards, they wanted to get a few more shots in. A few more punches, a few more slaps. Well, this is the truth about justice. We all want it. What do you think about 9-11? Whatever you think about Ferguson. Whatever you think about the journalists that are dying. We all want justice. We all know that we need justice. And you see, if there's no justice in the world... If there's no ultimate justice, then our lives are just meaningless. If there's no justice, then there really can't be any meaning. If the only justice we have is by flawed human beings, then our lives are just a struggle for power. If that's the only justice that exists... Is just the justice that flawed human beings can bring. Then we need to try to get as much power as we can. But if God is just, and if justice is connected with a divine being, then you know what? That's both good and bad for us today. It's good because if justice is connected to a divine being, then evil and all injustice will be answered. It's good. But it's bad because if justice is connected to a divine being, it's bad because we don't measure up to all of his standards of justice. We are participants in this broken world that we live in. We are the reason why Everything is messed up. And sometimes our lives are spent on advancing injustices in the world. It's also bad because not only do we not measure up, but if we're honest, we are the problem. It's not people out there, it's not out there, it's in here, it's in here. It's in my heart. It's in your heart. And that means that facing a divine, just God is kind of frightening and scary. But I want you to know that there is good news for all of us this morning. There's good news for you and there's good news for me. There's good news about the world that we live in. There's good news about the struggles that you face and will face this week. There's good news. You see, when you think about this text, what you realize is 
everything that Jesus is accused of is true of us. Jesus is accused of blaspheming God. That's what we do. We don't let him guide our lives. We don't trust him even when we can't see. Everything that Jesus is accused of is true of us. We're the ones that blaspheme God, and we're the ones that try to live our lives basically trying to be God. Trying to control things, trying to control our lives and control people. But what's also true is that everything that Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin condemned in Jesus is what makes us righteous. It's what enables us to be forgiven. It's what brings us hope for the future. You see that? The fact that he was the Messiah and condemned for being the Messiah, saying that he was the Messiah, that's your only hope. That's my only hope. There's no forgiveness for me apart from Jesus being the Messiah, which he was condemned for saying that he was. Everything that Christ was condemned for is what makes me righteous. It's what brings me forgiveness. It's what brings us hope. That he is the Messiah and that he is the judge. You see, there's good news for all of us this morning. That Christ is the Messiah and Christ is the judge. And this is what we're supposed to receive and live by each day. As a matter of fact, as one man put it, something like this. The judged judge is our only hope. The judged judge is your only hope and my only hope. And that brings us right to the table. Because this table, as the Bible tells us, represents the place where justice and mercy have kissed. You know that? The message of Christianity is that the Lord Jesus has endured everything in our place. That he wasn't someone that came to live a life that we just try to follow the best we can according to what he says and according to his principles and everything's going to be fine with God, between God and us. It's that Jesus literally came to pay the penalty for sin, to purchase a people. And that he's also judge, that he also has all authority in heaven and on earth, and that he's coming back. You see, it was the same night in which Jesus was betrayed, just a few hours before what we read and looked at this morning at Mark 14, just a few hours before that, that he had this meal with his disciples. And as he was gathered with them around the table, he said that he wanted us to do this meal, to take and eat, to celebrate this meal, until he returns. As a matter of fact, he literally took, took the bread and he broke it. And he says to his disciples, this bread represents my body, which was broken for you. Take and eat. 
take and eat and be nourished by my life and by my death for you. In the same way, after he blessed the meal and what was going on, he also took the cup and he said, this cup represents the new covenant. This cup represents my blood. It's not just that I've lived in your place. It's that I've shed my blood. I will shed my blood for you. It's that he tells his disciples that his blood was shed for the remission, for the forgiveness of sins. And that means when we come to the table that Jesus wants us to share this together. We all share of the same bread. We all share the same cup. Because it represents and signifies the Lord Jesus. You see? We share the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is what unites us together. And that's why what's going on at the table is far more than us just remembering something that Jesus has done. There's action involved. In just a few moments, we're going to pass the bread, and then we'll pass the cup, and we'll we'll take these together. But remember that as you're passing and sharing, you're also taking for yourself, right? You're not just sitting there staring at your bread, even though your kids are going to stare at your bread, and they're going to wonder what you're doing. They're going to wonder if they can have some. And they're thirsty, and they're going to want something to drink. But you realize that Jesus doesn't just ask us to share things. He asks us to take the bread and then to eat the bread, to take the cup and then drink the cup. He wants us to appropriate him. He wants us to take him afresh. This table is God's pledge to you of his love what he has done to purchase your salvation. And as you take the bread and as you drink from your cup, you are taking Christ, not because the bread and the cup changes into Christ, but because it represents him. And God is getting the gospel, the good news, not just in your ears if you've been listening and paying attention. He's actually coming to all of your senses so you can hear and smell and taste it. Because he wants you to taste and see that he is good. Christ's death really is your life. So if you're here this morning, you might be wondering, well, how do I know if I get to take or not? Well, you need to think about if you've ever received the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you recognize that the judged judge is your only hope? Are you willing to admit that you're part of the problem? That you are the problem? That I am the problem? That everything that's going on in the world is not everybody out there. It's actually, I've done a pretty good job at playing my part and all that. Because if you're willing to admit that you're a sinner and you're willing to acknowledge that you need the Lord Jesus Christ and you've done that in a public way, to have the Lord Jesus Christ is not for you just to live by yourself. Jesus died for the church. It's to announce before the world that you love the Lord Jesus. And more importantly, you've been loved by him. Because it's his love that first matters. Your love is always a response. So if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, this table isn't for you. 
but Jesus is. And you can think about your relationship with him. And you can think about who he is and who he's claimed to be and how the fact that he said that he was the Messiah and the judge changes the entire world. It's what he's been doing. But if you know the Lord Jesus, then you need this table. He's given it to us to remind us of his power and remind us of his love and remind us that one day, one day, we'll all be gathered around the wedding feast of the Lamb. This table is pointing forward to heaven when Christ himself will be our pastor. And you won't have to put up with me anymore. And Christ will feed you. And Christ will pastor you forever and ever. That's what this table ultimately points to, is heaven. The elders will come forward. We'll pray and then distribute these. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you that you are our shepherd. We thank you that you are indeed the answer for sin, the answer for our sin. We thank you that you were the judged judge. And we thank you that that is our only hope. Because we live in a world that is very confusing and frustrating and hard And Lord, even though you've given us many things to be joyful about, and you've given us many seasons in our life that have brought us tremendous joy and thankfulness, we also know the days and the seasons that are hard. And we thank you that you are with us in both. And that in the difficult times, in the midst of the brokenness and disorderliness of the world, that you are reminding us that you are with us and care and that all of the hardness of our lives is redeemable and that you will be glorified. You will be glorified in everything. So Lord, we ask that as we take these elements together, as we take the bread and as we take the cup, would you please cause us to feed on Christ, that we will be refreshed by his presence, refreshed by his death, that we'll be ready to live this week. For we know, Lord, that you've numbered our days, and we know that one day you will bring us to heaven. Thank you. Lord, nourish our souls for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.